going to go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to jump in um, in our Bibles. Second so Kings chapter two verse eighteen is where we're at at the moment. We have now seen the mantle pass from Eliyahu to Elishma, or if you will, from Elijah to Elisha, which is even harder to delineate between the two. We have now, the, the good news is from this point on, basically, you're going to see Elishema. You're going to see the, the second guy, um, because the other guy has gone and been whisked away in a chariot of fire. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm just excited about the rest of chapter 2. And, and one of the reasons is that there's just so much beauty and weirdness. Uh, and I think I relate to both. Uh, I, I, just, I look at the world and I see it as a place that God's constantly pouring forth beauty for us to see. And the weirdness is my part. Uh, and then we get to chapter 3 next week, God willing. And I just want to warn you, chapter 3 is mind-blowing. You might not see it, but I challenge you to take a look, read ahead. But it is amazing what God has for it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's watch him work. Lord, we just want to commit this night to you. We pray you would bless every moment of it. Lord, on this cold and rainy day, people have braved it. They've come here and they are, are sitting in this warm room right now. Uh, away from the wind, away from the freezing rain, and here we are opening your word and expecting you to speak. But you tell us that as the snow falls down from heaven, which seems even more pertinent tonight than most nights, as it's that cold outside, uh, as the snow falls down from heaven, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon, causing the ground to, to bud and to flourish, bringing seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So is your word. It never returns to you empty or void. And we expect your word to do your work tonight. To equip, to instruct, to correct and rebuke. But Lord, ignite within us as we've sung, ignite within us a full-on, unapologetic love for you in each of our hearts tonight. And when you do that, my prayer is that when you do that, you would ignite a love for each other, a genuine and real selfless love like you intend for us to have. So I commit this time to you now. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit, Lord. Come upon me and do your work now and redeem every second in width, in depth, and in length. Let your message come forth now and speak perfectly into each of us that we would say, wow, that was so for me. So we commit this to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would uh, any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Please search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the thing for which you test everything to be true and false. You can bet if I'm going to say that about me, I will say that about everyone uh, included. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 19, and I'll go back with context. In 2, verse 19, it says this. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, or Elishima, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. Or you might have evil or bitter, and the ground barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from where it shall be no more death or barrenness. 
So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elishema, which he spoke. Well, then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, the youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! So he turned around and looked at them. That tells us he has a little bit of British in him, because that's what we do, right? We turn and we look. And pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. So he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, this is what we're looking at tonight. Is, well, what we really need is some salt for the water, and whatever you do, don't mock a bald guy where there's bears. Well, there's so much more in our story than this. And so let's get a little context. And let's dive into what it is that he wants to say. This is where we started. For those who were here last week, what we do know is we said goodbye to Eliyahu, Elijah with the J. And he went four places, and in each of those places, his assistant, his apprentice, Elishema, as we see here, Elisha, followed him. The first was Gilgal, which again was a place of consecration historically, to Bethel, or Bethel, which was a place of communion. It was the place where, where Jacob would realize that there was, a, if you will, an escalator between heaven and earth. It was the place, ultimately, and then we even see, unfortunately, it's a place that has been completely abused, because in Bethel, that was the place where the first king of the northern empire, his name was Jeroboam, decided that he needed to make sure the people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem, so he put a big gold cow there. So people could commune with the cow instead of going down to Jerusalem because he knew that if they went down to Jerusalem, they'd side with the southern kingdom. And if you will, doing that, he says, they'll kill me. It was there, by the way, when Elishema, this guy, following his boss, Eliyahu, it was there that he actually encounters a first time a group of people who say, you know your boss is going to leave you, right? And he says, yeah, I know. Shut up. And well, I can't even say in so many polite words, but he says it in such a way. It was there that he receives his first challenge of discouragement, if you will. But he goes from the place of consecration to the place of communion to the place of conviction, Jericho. Jericho was the place, as we know, with history because it was the place where Israel saw in an act of faith the walls that seemed impenetrable, impervious, fall down. And then from there they crossed the Jordan. And it was the place of connection, the place where priests had to stick their foot in the water, trusting God would stop the water, because if God didn't stop the water, they would be taken away in the flood. The water overflowing its banks. And it's interesting. Please hear me in this. What we're going to basically see is we're going to see this new guy, Elishema, retrace those steps. He's going to start at the Jordan. He's going to cross over. We saw that. He's at Jericho, and from Jericho, he'll go to Bethel. And from Bethel, by the way, by chapter 4, he'll wind up in Gilgal. So the places that he's been, he's returning to. But please hear me in this. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, chances are you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, the story of Passover, Pesach. There, by the way, we know that God systematically, if you will, defeats all of the gods of Egypt and then delivers Israel. But I'd like you to consider what delivery really means. Delivery does not mean removal. They're two very different things. If you were to call and ask for a pizza to be delivered, they would be wise to ask to where. 
Just removing it from the pizza place does not mean that the pizza has been delivered. It just means it's been removed. Funny, when we talk about deliverance, we always seem to be talking about an application. Like, all I really want is this thing out of my life. In other words, we should be having removal services versus deliverance services. Because if we're going to have deliverance, you should be going from someplace to someplace else. But God had intention to remove them from Egypt to bring them to the mountain God had promised Moses in Exodus 3 when God called himself the I Am. And he said, you'll come back here and you'll worship me on this mountain. And it is there they received the commandments. It's important to note that they did not receive the commandments in Egypt as if what God were to say is, if you could just do all of these things, I'll get you free. Because it's about grace. God delivered them not because they were cute or because they were strong or they were mighty, but because God just simply loved them. Now, you do aware, you are aware, right, that God loves you not because you're so darn lovable. And you might be, you might not be. God loves you because he's love. Because if there was something about you God could love, then there's something about you you could lose, and then God could change his mind. If God loved Bruno because of his hair, well, Bruno might be in trouble now. I mean, the reason I say that is, is in this world, we, t- we tend to sort of try to hook people by something that is sadly temporary, And then we apply that to God, which is very dangerous. And we say, God, I just want to know why you love me. And God says, I love you because I'm love. And because of that, he'll never have to change his mind. There'll be no reason for him to cool on you. Because no matter how much you change, he hasn't. Isn't that good news? But when God pulled them out of Egypt, he wanted to start pulling Egypt out of them. And I remember the first time I read the story of the Exodus. I was actually 20-something years old, 23 years old. First time I actually read the story versus just thought there was an old guy and he had a beard and he held up a staff and water parted and they left. But when I actually read the Bible for the first time over it, I realized that they left a mixed multitude. In other words, they weren't all Jewish. And of course, my first application, as many, would be like, well, that's the church, right? I mean, there's going to be those that are really excited about going into the promised land. And then there are those who really want to go back. And then there are those who really don't know what in the world they're doing. They're just kind of there. But I remember as I continue to read the Lord showing me, Tony, the mixed multitude is you. There's a part of you that loves me with all that you are. And there's a part of you that looks back at the world and thinks it wasn't so bad. And then there's a part of you that doesn't know what in the world's going on, which, to be honest, is probably the majority of me most of the days these days. And I realize when God starts to remove that first generation, it's a very, very merciful thing. In each of us, God starts to remove the old person we were. Now, he, he laid to rest that man, that old woman, that old man, when you said yes to him at the cross. But we somehow keep trying to drag him along, which seems really funny to me. There's this dead body and we're dragging him along thinking somehow he'll be good at parties or something. After all, he looks better in the club than we do now because we don't belong there. And God says, you know, reckon that old man dead, is what he tells us in the book of Romans. And please hear me in that. As God does that, that second generation starts to rise up and they're brought into the promised land. But when they're brought into the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan themselves. Now, the promised land, you know, it's natural for us to go, oh, I'm going to, because if you've ever, you know, sang any of those cool old spirituals, it's like the promise, the Jordan seems to be death and the promised land seems to be heaven. The problem is there's an awful lot of battles to find in the book of Joshua, and that just doesn't sound like heaven to me. And I realized what God called 
that land was a land of abundance and a land of fruitfulness. He called it the land of milk and honey. A land where you couldn't water it with a, with a foot anymore because the silt was what they actually used to sort of stop and dam up their little streams of irrigation in Egypt. Now they're going to have to trust God for the rain. And God's like, I have a place for you. Please hear me in this. I have a place for you of ministry, of abundance, of fruitfulness. But it is after the wilderness. And to be honest, I don't believe that most people who call themselves Christians will ever find themselves in the promised land at all. They'll be like, I, I don't want to go to hell and I want out of Egypt. I want out of that bondage and I don't want that addiction anymore or whatever. And I don't want that depression and I hate that stuff. But the idea of actually flipping that all around and being used to be a blessing to people, yeah, I'm cool with that. What is it going to cost me? God goes, well, it's going to cost you. It's going to, it's going to take for you to die, the person that you are, so that I could become the center of your world, not you. But you know, when you let that happen, something amazing takes place. You start watching God do things through that you could not have fathomed doing before. That's part of the beauty. The reason I say that is, is that Elijah has taken Elishema now over the Jordan again, because like every one of us, you're going to have to have that experience yourself. You're going to have to cross the Jordan yourself. By faith, you're going to have to step just out of that place where you're just sort of spinning and happy not to go to hell to that place where you make yourself available and say, God, now use me to touch someone else's life. One thing I've learned over the last month, as, as many of you have been familiar with the flu, uh, we've been calling it the zombie flu, is you really can't be contagious unless you're infected. That just makes sense. If you don't have the flu, you can't give the flu. But what about that with Christ? The joy of the Lord and the love of God. What would that be like for us if we were that infected so that we could be that contagious? Because what you find is some people, it's like we kind of live this meh life for Christ. And then we expect the fruit to be anything but meh, which doesn't make any sense because everything bore fruit of its kind. So we live a lukewarm life, but we expect everyone to be on fire that we touch. How in the world does that work? You're going to have to cross that Jordan yourself, that place where you're like, Lord, unique to me is a ministry you have ordained specifically for me. It'll fit within Scripture. It'll be empowered by your Holy Spirit. But you bespoke a ministry uniquely to me. And I just want you to know I'm available. Please hear me in this. You are not the artist and you are not the workman. You are the tool and you are the paintbrush. And there's the beauty in it. Because of that, you don't have to worry about how it gets done. It's the availability. God does the work. He's just looking for somebody faithful, available, and teachable. We say fat. God's looking for fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. Now, the reason I say that is we've gone back now from the Jordan, and now Eliyahu has crossed the Jordan. And it's there. Remember that there were those 50 men that were like, no, no, maybe Elijah really hasn't gone at all. Maybe the Holy Spirit just picked him up and dropped him somewhere. Like, that's going to happen. Well, and so with that, he goes, well, no, no, you really don't need to look. But finally, he's ashamed that they keep asking. He's like, go ahead and look. They do a three-day journey, and they don't find anything, of course. And he's like, didn't I tell you that? And that takes us to verse 19. Now, in our first two major miracles that he does, I'd like you to consider the fact that Elisha, this guy, it's about water. And the first person, Eliyahu, Elijah, was about water. Do you remember with the first guy, he held back the rain for three and a half years, roughly the ministry of Jesus. Also, the same amount of time, if you will, as the, the Great Tribulation. That's just to put some thoughts in your head. 
Uh, here, this guy, on the other hand, he's got water to heal. Now, uh, before we even dive in a little bit, consider what water is. To the Middle East to this day, water is life. Without water, there's no life. That's just the way it works. Jericho, for what it's worth, Jericho is on the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And you're probably aware of the fact the Dead Sea, though it's water, the trace minerals aren't trace anymore. And there's so much salt. It's called a hypersaline. It's not the most, but it is a hypersaline lake. And as a result of that, even bacteria doesn't grow there. Now, for what it's worth, here as we're looking at this place, we go to Jericho. And at Jericho, the people say, hey, it's a pleasant place. But we have a problem. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that most cities are built up on a hill. That's actually intelligent from a military perspective, because if somebody tries to come at you, you have gravity to your favor. You could just roll big rocks, and that's actually quite effective. Getting run over by a boulder tends to stop the advance. The problem is the higher up you go, the less water you find. So finding a place that actually has water and a hill is a miracle. And these people now notice what they say. The men of the city of Elisha, the last time he was in Jericho, remember, they were kind of like, don't you know your master is going to leave you? They said, please take note. The situation, Moshav, the word for situation literally means the seat of the place is pleasant. The word for pleasant, the word tov, and it goes all the way back to Genesis when God made something and he looks and he says it was good. Same word, tov. It's in uh, Psalm 133, when God says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together. God uses this word. And he goes, Take a look at this place. It is pleasant as my Lord, speaking of delicious seas, but the water is, try this word if you would. This is a Hebrew word. Try that. Come on, give it to me. Come on, this is Hebrew. You can't go There we go. There is it. Now understand, this word for bad is a very important word. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2 when God speaks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the two words he uses for good and evil is tov, the, and ra'a. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we have both of them in the same sentence. I think that's interesting. And he goes, the place here is pleasant. But the water is evil. It's evil. Consider this. When God calls something evil, it isn't because he doesn't like it. It isn't like he's not fond of khaki jeans, so he says that's evil. Or he's not fond of rap music, so he calls it evil. Or he's not fond of Chinese food, so he calls it evil. Evil in its base word, every Hebrew word comes from a verb, and the verb means to cause harm, to damage, to hurt. The reason why God sees something as evil is because it hurts someone he loves. From the day that I was born, one thing was very evident as I started to become aware, and that was that my mother was dying. My mother was diagnosed with cancer shortly after she became pregnant. And she and it was a very uh, aggressive cancer. And I just remember being a kid. I was nine years old carrying my mother from room to room because she had become a skeleton. My mother, please understand, looked like a thin Marilyn Monroe, to give you an idea. They did a movie way back in the day with, I don't know if any of you have heard of the actor Cary Grant. I think the movie was called something like Pacific 
air control or something like that. And they went to the Philippines to find the prettiest girl on the Philippines. They looked for every Filipino girl they could. My mother happened to be there with her first husband, who looked like Santa Claus. And uh, it, uh, he was a military guy. And they somehow chose her in the movie. So she, she doesn't remotely look Filipino. She looks... And uh, that was the that was, and she was feisty and fiery and a jazz singer. That's what I remember. But I remember cancer t- eating her away, and being a kid and not understanding much, but understanding that I hated cancer because I loved my mother. That only makes sense, doesn't it? And I watched her erode and erode and erode till I was eleven, and finally she just she lost. The reason I don't like cancer is because I've seen what it does to someone I love. When God looks at sin in your life, he calls it evil because he sees how it is a cancer to you and he doesn't like the way that it hurts you. Think of it this way. If God didn't care about you, he wouldn't, he'd be indifferent about sin. Does that make sense? Let's face it. If you don't care about someone, you're indifferent about their sin. But when you care about him, you take genuine concern. And God is so into you that he sees these things and it concerns him. Here, the water is bad. Now, it's in the promised land, Yeriko, but notice it says, and the ground is barren. And this is a very important word there. Shechal. Because the word shechal for barren literally means to cause to miscarry. In the simplest sense, there's a perpetual problem in this place, and that is that the ground is fruitless. It's not producing fruit. Ironic, in the land that God promised would be fruitful, the land he promised would be abundance, this great fruitful place, and he says, the problem is there is no fruit happening here. It sort of tried to, it starts to grow, but everything that starts to happen fizzles out, and it never really produces any fruit. And, the, and what's important to recognize is it wasn't just that they looked and said, the ground just stinks. This is horrible ground. They actually discovered what the problem was. The problem was, hear me on this, the source of life. The source of life was wrong. And because the source of life was wrong, what happened is is that there was no fruit that was genuinely being born to a place God promised would be fruitful. Do you see how that works with you and me? God has within, built within your spiritual DNA a desire for you to be fruitful. And with that, we find ourselves in this place that's like, I want the world around me affected. I want my friends to come to Christ. I want my family to come to Christ. I want to see people really drawn. And somewhere in it, it just seems like it never comes to term. It seems like somewhere in it, everything is, is spiritually stillborn all around me. Well, understand, maybe this is your situation. Well, the good news is God has a solution for it. Verse 20 says, bring me a new bowl. Chadish. Zelachit, the word for bowl, literally means an earthen vessel. If it's earthen, what is it made out of? You tell me. What's it made out of if it's an earthen vessel? Clay, dirt, mud. That was pretty simple, right? You got that? You bake it. In other words, like ceramics is the idea, right? So you take this new bowl and you put salt in it. Do you see that in verse 20? Now, what we're going to find is that the Lord is curing the, he's, going to, he's actually going to heal the water. It isn't that the miracle was in the vessel. 
per se, or for that matter, the salt, God just wants to use these two things to perform this healing. Does that make sense? So now I have to go to Scripture and I start asking, well, what do I know about salt from Scripture? Not just like what I could find out on the Internet by some guy that seems like sits in his own basement and still somehow has, thinks he waxes eloquent. What does the Bible tell me about salt? And for that matter, what does the Bible tell me about an earthen vessel? Now, I remind you, the problem here is a place that should be great and fruitful, that God promised is great and fruitful, is actually barren now. And the reason is that the source of life is a problem. Now, get me on this. If you were to look up the word salt, by the way, for what it's worth in Scripture, what you're going to find is the majority of the times you find it, it refers to a place, either the Valley of Salt or the Salt Sea. The Salt Sea, of course, being the Dead Sea. So then if we remove that from the equation, what we have are these. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. When God says, all the heavenly offerings of the holy things in which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever. That's Numbers 18, 19. When God wants to introduce salt outside of a location, he does so. And actually, to be honest, it tends to be the first uh, addition in it, in the scripture. He tells us that it is a place, it is a, a place of transcending of permanence and eternity. That's what he tells us. It's a covenant that is an everlasting forever covenant. It speaks of eternity. It speaks of permanence. In Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5, we read, Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave dominion over Israel to David forever and to his sons forever as a covenant of salt? Again, the idea of transcending, eternal, and permanent. When God speaks about land that is covered in salt, he speaks about it being permanently damaged. Deuteronomy 29:23, with brimstone and salt, you're probably aware of the fact you have a woman who turns to a pillar of salt. We have, and that's of course Lot's wife. Judges 9.45, where the land is sowed with salt. Jeremiah 17.6, where the land is salted, if you will, but now salted in the sense of it actually being destroyed because of this. And in all cases, there's this transcending, permanent, eternal aspect to it. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 47.11 says the swamps and the marshes are the one part not healed. They're given over to salt. Again, the salt sea. We know of it from the aspect of flavoring as medicine in an essential part of the sacrifice. Let me say that again, and we'll get around to where we're at with this. A flavoring, Jesus would say, Matthew 5.13, Mark 9.50, Luke 14.34, Hey, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be salted again? How does saltless salt become salty? I'll help explain that in a moment. In medicine, Ezekiel 16, verse 4, it says, As for your nativity on the day that you were born, your navel cord wasn't cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling cloths. Strange is enough, this is what you did with a baby. It was like preparing a ham. Um, you know, you washed it with water, and then you rubbed it with salt, and then you wrapped it up. And the idea of that was it was something that actually helped fortify the skin and it actually helped kill the diseases that could be around the skin. And again, from Ezra 6, 7, Ezekiel 43, Matthew, or Mark 9, every sacrifice is to be seasoned with salt. Now let me put all of this together. And again, I'm just trying to, this is me trying to understand 
How in the world God puts salt? I mean, it could have been anything. He could have put hyssop because it becomes a healing herb that we see throughout Scripture. He could have done that, but he didn't. He could have actually just said, put a different kind of water in there and throw it in. He could have actually said, speak to the water. Think of the options God could have said. But instead, what God told Elishema is this. Get an earthen vessel, something made of earth. And I want you to take that vessel and I want you to fill it then with salt. And then I look at salt and what I realize is there is an eternal aspect to everything he speaks of here. And I realize why every sacrifice should be given with salt. Because if your sacrifices are solely for things on this earth, you're missing the whole point. We are contacting an eternal, we are worshiping and praising and offering to an eternal God that helps reconnect us with the idea that we are pilgrims in a world that we live in right now. If you will, this is your hotel room. And I'd like you to consider that. Scripturally, God makes really clear, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. In other words, who recognizes we are passing through here. Imagine what it would be like. So, Johanna is given a hotel room for three weeks. During that time, she doesn't like the size of the bed, so she orders a new one. During that time, she doesn't like the paintings on the wall, so she removes them with a screwdriver and puts new ones up. Once she likes, she finds a little bit more fitting. Because it seems to be some kind of situation that was harrowing at the moment, they actually say you have an unlimited spending account down in the restaurant and you can eat and you can buy anything in the gift shop you want. Here's the problem. When you check out, you have to leave it here. So for three weeks, she well, I might say for two and a half weeks, she starts to just live it up. Big screen TVs are popping in. It's like now she can't even fit anything else in the room and she is just living large. But the problem is there's this nagging part in the back of her head that tells her she's checking out sooner or later and none of this is coming with her. The problem is if you just, if your whole life is investing in your hotel room, once she checks out, the rest of her life's going to stink because she's going she's to remember how cool it was for a moment when she had that hotel room versus actually spending time really doing something that might make a difference. And I realize all of the time that we have at church, if it's all about the temporary, and you can do that. You can go to church and it's all about, let's talk about helping the poor. Though helping the poor is good. It just needs to attach to eternity. Oh, well, you know, we need to go out and clothe the, you know, clothe the naked, like we're finding a lot of those out right now. You know, well, actually in the summer, to be honest, the people that you really should clothe because they're naked, they don't want to be clothed anyways. They chose that. And we need to feed the, the hungry. We need to house the homeless. You know, and it's like, hey, I think these things are great. But he says, if it's going to be a sacrifice to me, there has to be an attachment to eternity. Are they hearing about me? Are you doing it in my name? Are you doing it heartily as unto me, the two things that Colossians requires? Or to be honest, are you just doing it because it makes you feel good? Let's face it, if we do it the moment we add Jesus, the group of people that applaud us for it gets a lot smaller, doesn't it? You go and you just feed a whole bunch of people, unsaved people will go, that was really cool. The moment you bring Jesus into it, they're like, oh, this was, this was a means to that end, isn't it? And if we're going to be honest, we're like, yeah, yes, it is. That's exactly the point. See, because if I am actually attached to eternity, you should know it. So consider this for a moment, and then we'll put this in. And there's one amazing verse, by the way, in Colossians 4 that just brings the whole thing to loggerheads for me. So here we are. We're in the winter of London, 2018. Strangely enough, we actually made something really, really unique might happen tomorrow. You just might see the sun. Just wanted to let you know that. But you know what happens? You sit under the gray. It's cold and it's gray. 
The people look gray. The, the streets look gray. The people walk like they're gray. Everything is kind of gray. Conversation looks gray, right? But somehow in all of that, something happens. Bruno decides he's going to take a trip. Because that's really strange. Anyways, and, uh, and Bruno takes a trip, and he's going to take a trip to Italy. And Bruno's a relatively fair-skinned individual. And Bruno takes a trip to Italy, and he gets in a plane. And as he gets in a plane, that plane has to break that overcast, and it gets above it. Have you ever been in a plane when that happens? It's awesome. Because everything seems so small when it's gray, doesn't it? Like everything just seems like it's all just kind of cramped. And then you get up and for the first moment you start to see the curves of the earth and you start to see this horizon that seems like it just goes on forever. And you see the sun. And you're like, oh, I think I remember you. And you see this beauty and you're up there. And then you go and you land in a place of sun and you're there. And Bruno is there for, let's say, two weeks. He is going to look different when he comes back. Because the sun that he has been basking in is going to show on him. Does that make sense? But the problem is Bruno's going to have to go and he's going to take that plane again. And then he's going to go and he's going to go to where the clouds are above them. But he's going to have to go back under those clouds and land here. And when Bruno comes back here and he tries to explain to people there is a sun... And they're like, there's a what? I've heard stories. That sounds like fairy tales. Bruno goes, look at me. I am affected by that sun. There is a testimony on his face, on his skin, on his flesh. Does that make sense? When you met Jesus, God took you and he raised you up from the temporary overcast that you live in. And he showed you a horizon. Do you remember that? When you first came to Christ and everything was so big and colorful. And he's like, I'm showing you this, but I'm going to put you back down there. Because there are other people who have never seen this. And when you go down there, you're going to be explaining something they've never seen but I'm going to affect you in such a way they're going to see it on you and not just from you. Does that make sense? And that's what happens when we become a representative of eternity. As a representative of eternity, we are in essence travel agents to heaven. We are, if we will, you know, sort of a state agent saying, you know, God has a place for you and I'm inviting you there, but you need to see, see it on my face, but please hear it in my voice. Listen to this verse from Colossians chapter four, verse six. Let your speech always be full of grace. Grace means a gift, charismata, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I'd like you to consider the fact that what God says is, I would like what comes out of here. And let's face it, with Bruno, and I would expect this from Bruno, if Bruno comes back from Italy after a couple weeks, he starts to sound a little more Italian when he comes back. He's like, let me tell you why. No. And the reason he's been affected, his speech has been affected by that. Does that make sense? And when I go to Italy, when I come back from Italy, I look like a meatball because I'm surrounded by hugs, kisses, and pasta, all of which I never seem to get enough of. So, hey, feed me all you want. I come back and I'm like, it's like, you know, I mean, nobody doubts that I've been to Italy when I've been to Italy. And the reason I say that, he goes, let your speech be 
so that, well, what do you think church is supposed to be, you guys? Church was supposed to be the place where we pull ourselves out of the overcast again and go, remember that horizon? Remember that eternity? Remember how amazing it is that God is so full of color and life in a world that's trying to live without him, but it can't. It's these places we're reminded of that because, let's face it, after a while, Bruno will forget. He'll remember that he's been to Italy, but he'll forget what it was like to be there. And church is supposed to be the place where we get that all over again. Salt connects us. Salt is a testimony of eternity. And I'd like you to consider this. That salt had to be put in something. What did that salt need to be put in? According to this, they had to be put in an earthen vessel. If you have your Bible with you, do this. If you're kind of fairly quick to it, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And actually, let's do this. Let's go. Oh, where do I want to take you first? There's just so much, but I want to make sure that I'm trying to be clear. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's do this. Let's just go to the simple and the pure in this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God may not be of us. Now, what is he speaking of there as an earthen vessel? Does anyone know? Yeah, Second Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. When he speaks of earthen vessels, what is he speaking of? Us. He's speaking of us. Because out of the ground we were made, for ground from, from the ground, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. You are the earthen vessel. Do you get that? He goes, in other words, what he says is, this earthen vessel that would have seemed to be that the vessel itself doesn't seem to be amazing. It's not a Ming vase. It's not this super decorated Fabergé egg. It's just something made out of dirt. It's this dirt clod that's shaped to hold something. And he says, but we have the glory of God living inside that amazing vessel. And that's what makes the vessel amazing. So that the glory isn't in the vessel. The glory is in what it contains. He goes, isn't that amazing that you and I, earthen vessels, get to contain the glory of God? Back in our situation here, it should be fruitful, but it's not. What do we need to do? We need to take that new earthen vessel, not the old one, but the new one, and attach it again to eternity. Get it to that place of eternity. Now look at when was the last time you thought of heaven? I'll just be honest. If you're of the mindset like myself, where the rapture I consider is inevitable and imminent, now maybe you're like, well, I believe it's here, it's here. In the end of it all, I guarantee you this, we're all going to agree on the other side of it. And I guarantee you, whenever it happens, we're not going to look at each other and go, ha, I was right. It would be the last thing on our mind at that moment. But I do, according to Scripture, I see that the Lord could come in any given second, and I live in that, but it puts me in this place where I'm constantly reminded that heaven is my permanent address. It's weird when you're filling out a you know credit card application, permanent address, heaven you know i'll send the bill 
I just, I'm, I'm joking. But to get the idea here that I recognize that where I live, here's the weird part. My permanent address is a place that I've actually never really been. I've only seen hints of. But every little hint I get, well, let me say it this way. The way that God works and the way the devil works are opposite. The devil works on credit. You know, he gives you the goods up front, then you spend the rest of your life paying for it. God, on the other hand, he gives you the appetizer and continues to have you taste and see, and each day it gets better. I, I'm actually a big fa- fan of the second one. So it's, I can tell you this, every day that I grow in Christ, and I came to Christ at 19, every day that I grow in Christ, it gets better. And if this is the trajectory I'm on, I can hardly wait to see what's at the end of this. I know one thing that's at the end of it, and that's Jesus, and that's all that matters. So maybe you're in that place where you realize, man, it just doesn't seem fruitful, might I say. Reattach yourself to eternity, beloved. Get yourself in that place where you're like, Lord, how does heaven fit into this situation? Has anyone ever told you, you know, you could be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Has anyone ever told you that? Can I just say, if you're not heavenly minded, you're really kind of no earthly good. Because we're actually here to represent that. We are the only light of the world, Jesus tells us. So they go to the source. They put that salt back in there. And he says, now there will be no more death and no more barrenness. And by the way, the water remains healed to this day. You can go to Jericho. You need a bulletproof bus, by the way. But if you go there, there's a place there called the Spring of Eliahu, and that has, still has fresh water to this day. Is it the same one? We don't know. What's clear is you can get fresh water in Jericho to this day. Now let me close this up with these last few verses, because let's face it, if I don't address this now, you're going to spend a week going, what the heck is this whole thing with bears and kids? He leaves Jericho, the place I remind you, of conviction, and he goes back to the place of communion, the place of Bethel. It is the place, I remind you, of a gold cow. It is the place where Jacob saw the ladder that connected heaven and earth. And it's the place of fellowship. The name means the house of God, Bethel. And when he went there, it says as he was going on the road, he ran into some youths. Do you see that there in verse 23? Do you guys see that? I'm just checking. Yeah. The word for youth is the word chatan. Chatan, by the way, means diminutive, small, or least, for what it's worth. There are other words. For instance, na'ar means boy or adolescent. Yaled means offspring, like someone's kids. Yanach means baby. None of those words are used here. What we read is a person that is least or someone. And this could be someone that's a young man would be the idea. And it says that they went and they mocked him. Kalach, the word for ridicule. They ridiculed him. And what they said is, Go up, you bald head. Now, from an initial survey of this, doesn't it just kind of look like Elish Shema is just a guy with an attitude and he obviously has, he's a little touchy about his follicle challenge here. Kind of looks, he's like, whatever you do. You can imagine people are like, hey, look at this guy's powerful and he loves the Lord, but don't talk about his head. There's got to be something more to it, right, than that. And I realized this. First of all, notice it says in verse 23 that he went up from there to Bethel. The person he had been serving, Eliyahu, went up in a chariot of fire. And the term for better, go up, by the way, is still used to this day. Allah, not, not like Allah. Allah, Allah means to ascend, get up, go up, get away, go away. Now this is the place, I remind you, of false worship of this golden calf. And Eliyahu is gone, and the Shema is walking, and he's surrounded. And what we realize is there is a mass of people. How do we know that? Because 42 of them are going to get mauled. Who knows how many people are surrounding him? But of all the things to call him, they call him 
bald head. It's like, oh, you didn't go there. Why is that such a big deal? Because the guy that he served, what is the one physical trait we know about his, the person who discipled him? Elisha, or I'm sorry, Eliyahu, Elijah. What's the one physical trait we know about him? He's a hairy guy. Remember when they said, well, what did he look like? I have. And he said, oh, he was a hairy guy with a leather belt. And then he was tall or short or young or old or fat or thin. The only thing he said is he was the hairy guy. For which then he's like, oh, yeah, well, that's obviously Elijah. I mean, apparently all you have to do is say hairy and they knew who that was. Now, the reason I say that is, is if you took that and then you called the guy that was his student Baldy, do you see a difference there? You are comparing him and saying, you are nothing like that guy. And I want to warn you in this, this will take down so many people and it could take you down if you're not careful. As God has this place of fruitfulness in your life and this place where you work from the overflow and you celebrate the love of God. And the moment someone starts to compare, you forget how loved you are, don't you? At a moment like that, you look and you're like, wow, you're nothing like that. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says, We dare not, Paul speaking, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves with, among themselves, they're not wise in doing that. In other words, this group of people, they've set up their own little rules and they compare themselves with each other. He goes, the moment you start comparing yourself to another person in ministry, you're in trouble. And this is exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 12. Because one of two things is going to happen. And he talks about, he says, now that I'm giving you gifts and I want to use you, the problem is you need to recognize you are a part of the body. But here are the two natural things that could happen. And they're both pride and you'll be prone to one or the other. He goes, on one side he says that a part of the body could look at another part of the body and go, dang, I'm not that, I'm not important. Because I'm not. And maybe that's you. I've learned that one of the most disabling things the enemy uses on people is a mirror. He just gets you thinking about you as if somehow you're the thing instead of God. He's like, well, so you call yourself an evangelist. How many people have you saved? Well, first of all, you don't save anyone. That's like asking a farmer, how many things have you grown? Well, you can throw the seed, but in the end of all, God still has to bring the increase. Well, you're not like that guy. Check out that guy. Oh, you've got a church. Well, what's your church like? Let me show you about this guy's church. And you compare. Oh, let me show you what a real prophet looks like. Let me show you what a real man of God looks like. Let me show you what a real woman looks like. You know, And somewhere in all of that, you compare and you realize, wow, I'm not that part of the body, so I must not be significant. Could you imagine? I'm not trying to be crude, but again, for our last few minutes, consider this. Imagine, if you will, that your colon just decided, well, I'm not really attractive. Nobody really gets to see me. I'm not an eye or a nose or some cute part of the body. So, you know, forget it. I'll just stop working. You will really be miserable. It's amazing the parts that we just assume work, how much we appreciate them when they, when they stop working like they should. But there's one side of it, and the side is, you know, I'll never be a pastor. I'll never be that prophet. I'll never be that guy on TV, or I'll never be a worship leader like that guy or whatever. And in the end of it all, you're like, well, then I must be insignificant. Look, at, can I just say something? It's God who builds things. And what I've learned is when God builds things, he has no spare parts. You're not a wart on the body of Christ. But the other side of it, and this is just as dangerous, is to think you're all that and that other parts are insignificant. 
you could kind of look and go, well, I'm this part, but you're like, what are you doing, like taking off the trash? You know, what's that? You know, and you realize, and it's like, in both cases, do you see how the mirror is functioning? On one part, you're none of that, and the other part, you're all that. And he goes, you need to recognize neither of those function properly. And the reason I say that is, is that they're comparing this guy to Eliyahu, and Elisha will never be Eliyahu because because he's not Eliyahu. And you'll never be somebody else, no matter how hard you try. So why not be the best you that God created you to be? Because you know what happens if you try to be someone else? You rob the world and the church of the you that God wants to use you to be. And I guarantee you, what God's making you is going to be better than anything you can make you to be. And so they all go up, you bald head. I find interesting what God tells us happened. And the, uh, Elisha looks back at him and he says he pronounces a curse. He doesn't curse at them like use curse words because Hebrew is a pure language. It doesn't have any curse words. So he kind of looks at it and pronounces a curse in the name of the Lord. And what attacks them? According to this, what attacks them? What does it say? Yeah, go, go ahead and say it. Be brave. Yes, notice it doesn't just say two bears. You know, I mean, I, I was born in Chicago. It's like, the bears. It's the bears. That are the, it's not the bears. It was two female bears. Now, are female bears tougher? Are female bears quicker? I mean, two bears, mall 42 people that are like young men. I mean, first of all, I think, were they slow young men? Or were these like super bears? But then I realized, why did God actually want to tell me that they were female bears? Well, for what it's worth, note this. Baldness in Scripture is used in shame. It's used as the first sign, by the way, of leprosy in Leviticus. It is used in shame in Ezekiel chapter 7. Not if you're bald, it's shameful. I just want to make that clear. But he uses it even in places like Jeremiah 47.5 about the land being barren like a head being barren. I think that's interesting. He's like, like a head that used to have here, this land, because of your disobedience, looks like a bald head. That's the idea. But the most of it is in that of shame and grief. And this is what they're saying to him. But listen to this about bears. Do you realize that on three occasions, God mentions a female bear outside of this? Listen to these three occasions. Second Samuel chapter 17 when they're giving counsel to Shai to try to stop David's son from killing his father. You know your father and his men, they're mighty men, and they are enraged in, the, in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Psalm 17, verse 12, actually it's just these two. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. When God dresses a female bear, it is in the context of trying to take one of her cubs away. Has anyone ever seen what happens to a, a female bear when a cub is even in mild peril? Talk about a helicopter mom. Female bears go mental. They go crazy. There is some maternal sense in a female bear that says, you know what, you would be better off just attacking her than trying to get at one of those cubs. There is this sense of a parental love that says, don't you mess with my kid. Do you get that? The reason I say that is, that happens to be the object of mauling here, the tool God uses. I get it. 
Don't miss this. And we'll wrap this up and close it. The whole idea is quite simple. Somewhere down the line, God is starting to raise you up to change lives, to use you to affect people. But it starts by falling in love with him with all that you've got. You cross the Jordan yourself and you say, Lord, kill the old me, raise up that new me that looks like you and fill me, Lord. And as that's the case, what you find is that there's this place where people are like, yeah, but you're never going to be that guy. And you should say, praise God, because I'm not that guy. Why would I want to be that guy? Because I'm not that guy. The one guy I want to be like is Jesus. And as it's the case, what you realize is those that are like, you know what, just get out of here because you're never going to be that guy. Well, you realize God's like, look, you need to remember, I have a parental love to you. And as a parental love, I take that very personally. And what these people are doing is the same thing that happens with a mother bear to her cubs. They're trying to pull the cub away from the mother. In our case, they're trying to pull us away from the Lord by getting us thinking of ourselves. God's like, don't you dare do that. And God will not let that happen if you let him. God is going to come and he is going to pull all of that out of your life. You get in this weird relationship and it's pulling you away from the Lord and then God pulls you out of that relationship and then you're like, God, I thought you loved me. Isn't that the weirdest how we play that with him? God, I had these friends, and they're constantly dragging me into sin. But they're my friends, man. They're my posse. And then God, like, sends them all to some other place in the universe. He's like, oh, they're all in the Arctic Circle. How did that happen? God, I thought you loved me. Now I feel so alone. God's like, I got rid of them so that you wouldn't have to be alone because you could be with me. It's so beautiful how God removes things that we actually don't realize how dangerous they are because he loves us. You realize the reason God does that is because he's jealous. But please hear me, not the jealousy that we know of our own selves. The jealousy we have is one where we feel inferior. But let me just say in the simplest sense, you cannot be jealous of something you don't want. I'm not a country music fan. If you won like lifetime tickets to like Slim Willie Witten and Slim Pickin down at the rodeo hoedown jamboree tractor, tractor trailer pole, uh, Orama. I'm not going to be jealous of that. I'm going to be like, good on you. I'm sure I'm busy that day. Can't be bu- I can't be guilty. I'm sorry, I can't be jealous of something I don't want. And the only thing God is jealous of is you. Because it's the one thing he wants. And he has been yanking things out of your life that you've been fighting him for ever since you said yes to him. But isn't it so much better when you gladly give it up because you realize what you're trading it in for? In these verses, what we have to bring this to close is we have a barren place. And in that barren place, God wants to fill that earthen vessel again with that which is transcending to heal the source of life within you so you can be fruitful. And then once you start to see that, he doesn't want you focusing on yourself, but rather celebrating the one who uses you to touch lives. As we go to prayer, please hear this. Some of you are familiar with that promise God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. It's so beautiful. And some people really latch on to some parts of it. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And to be honest, that's kind of weird that that would be the fundamental part to, to me that someone would latch on to, but what do I know? But right in the middle of all of this, as he promises him the land and he promises him this great fruitfulness, he has this one simple little phrase that it's easy to read past, but I don't get past it quickly. It's, it's, it's a speed bump that genuinely checks my heart. And he says, and I'll make you a blessing. 
Now, I don't know about you and where you've come from, but I can tell you, that's everything to me. I know what it's like to walk in a room and make it worse just by walking in the room. For God to take a promise and go, you know, I'm going to actually use you to make the world a better place. Now, notice he doesn't say, I'm just going to, you're, just, you're just going to be that without me. He's like, I'm going to use you. This is how I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to change the world and I'm going to use you. Why not you? What part of you is unqualified if God's the one who does the work? The only thing that's going to be left is whether you're fat or not. Faithful, available, and teachable. Because if you're willing to be that, God's willing to do the work. So here's what we pray today. First of all, when was the last time you realized you were the ambassador for eternity? Because when you leave this room, hey, this is a great place to practice because we're all supposed to be that. But when you walk out of this room, you're going back into the overcast. What would happen if we really shone like we should? How that might change the people we know. And then after that, let me say, it's time to just be like Jesus and be the person God called you to be. And as it's the case, watch what he does. He's going to transform lives. And those that are constantly dragging you into that, don't be surprised if a very maternal God, a very, I should say very paternal God, a very parental God doesn't step in and start actually severing those things from you out of love. It's really out of mercy. Because if God was willing to let his son die on a cross for us, to pay for all of our sins and be tortured to death there and then rise again on the third day so that a new person could rise up with him? Shouldn't we follow suit? Would you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for the work you've done tonight, for the, the what you've spoken in these uh, situations, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for learning from Elisha. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you are calling us back, Lord. And we get into this world and we feel, we feel filthy because this world's filthy. You tell us in First John that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. It's under his influence. And here we are, Lord. We can feel so insignificant in a city like this. So unimportant. And we could even be caught to this place where we try to blend in with the gray around us. And yet you've not called us to do any of that. From the moment that we received you, accepted your gift, you poured forth your Holy Spirit upon us, and in us, I should say. And your Holy Spirit's been transforming us, making us different from the world. So if we're trying to look like the world, we're fighting your Spirit within us, who's making us different. But all of this to draw us to you. And we confess to you, Lord, there's a lot of gray in our lives if we're not careful because we live around a world that we forget to influence and so we allow it to influence us. And we forget sometimes that endless horizon with the sun before us as we get caught into sort of the routine and the ritual and we recognize the difference between a rut and a grave is just how deep it's dug. And we get caught in these ruts. But tonight you've reminded us again that we are the ambassadors for eternity. And that one day we are checking out of this hotel room 
and that we would make the most of our time here. But we also recognize when we check out, we can't go back. Thank you, Lord, that this is temporary, which means as a Christian, this is as bad as it gets. But for someone who doesn't know you, this is as good as it gets. So give us that genuine love, Lord, for you, for each other, and then a genuine care for those around us in the world who don't know you yet, that we would see the cancer of their own sin and guilt and we would see it as evil. Jesus, we recognize you paid our price fully at the cross so that all of who we were could die. All that guilty, shameful, filthy individual could die. And when you rose again on the third day, just like Scripture promised, you, Lord, gave us a new life. You offer us a new life. We don't want to live the old life anymore but we want to live a life that's completely yours, even as you live completely for us. May we live completely for you. And in that, Lord, make us people who shine, shine for you. And don't focus on other people, Lord, unless it's to serve them, but rather to focus on you to be, you be our role model. And in that, Lord, make us more like you, we pray. So, Lord, we hand ourselves to you and say, Lord, now take all of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.